You're listening to Cinepunk. This episode, Orange on a Toothpick. Hi, I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson, and I am joined in studio as ever by the rest of the Cinepunk team. That is on my left, Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. And on my right, Ben Simpson. Hello. And we are looking at one of the great 1990s comedies, So I Married an Axe Murderer. You say that with such sarcasm, but I actually do think it is one of the great 1990s comedies. That is the hill that I will die on. It's, it's, it's one of many hills that you're going to die on, Rachel. Yes, it is. <laughs> I feel yes. I have is... died on many hills so far. This is to, another one. This is supposed to dying on Benny Hill, which is a different thing entirely. That's a different thing entirely, and that's something more like you would do, I suspect. It probably is. I don't know if i die on Benny Hill. I might die near Benny Hill. Okay, this has gone weird already. That's good. That's just trying to set the tone for Sir Mike Max Murderer, which, if you do not know, is a Mike Myers starring film from 1993, and it's about a guy who... Falls in love with a girl that he thinks is an axe murderer. Yeah, it's literally as simple as that. Yeah. <laughs> also, there's some weird Scottish humour and um, Amanda Plummer being fantastic as ever. There we go. Um, so let, let's start this off with uh, perceptions, uh, and because uh, first impressions of the film. Ben, you are looking so miserable in this <laughs> session. Ben's like, yeah, thanks, Rachel. That's another one. Um, I watched it, but <laughs> I have to say I didn't totally enjoy it. This, this I, had, I confess, is a surprise. And I, it, we had a, like a two-sentence conversation about this before the show, and I think we're going to get into why it is that you have problems with it. But it surprised me because you are not, not a Mike Myers oh, admirer. Oh, no, I, I do like Mike Myers. Uh-huh. So Definitely. That, that's important, I think, probably to start. Rachel, uh, where do you sit on Mike Myers? I, I don't <laughs> sit on Mike Myers, Robert. I think that would be impolite. Well, um, if we invite you, you could. See, I, I, I generally enjoy Mike Myers' work. I find it uneven. Mm-hmm. Um, and I So I Married an Axe Murder is my all-time favourite Mike Myers film ever. Not not Wayne's World, not Austin Powers. No, and this, I mean, it's right off the back of Wayne's World. Not Bohemian film. Rhapsody. I haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody. You should, he I is unrecognisable in it. You. Yeah, but he's hardly acting anymore, of course, so he has he has the freedom now to be unrecognisable. Well, I, I think he's got that. Um, so part of, I think for me, part of my, my, my admiration for him is he's got this sort of Peter Sellers-like quality of being able to trans pose himself between different characters. Yeah, you see in, in so many of his films where he's playing multiple characters, as indeed he does in So I Married an Axe Murderer, which is an outstanding choice, I have to say. Although I think this is the film that kind of um, begins his tendency to put on a Scottish accent at the drop of a hat. Alright, give your mother a kiss and I'll kick your teeth in. Well, we, we've hit it straight on, on, on the button here. We've, we've talked about the Scottish accent already. Ben, go on. This is, this is the problem you have with it, really, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's just well, one of the problems. Well, one of the it. problems um, is is Scottish accent. Is it a bad a Scottish accent? Is it, that no, the problem? It's, it's not bad. It's not bad by any means. Um, it's just because Shrek, yeah, and you know Austin Powers, fat bastard. Yeah, that's like all. All I can envision whenever I see it or or hear it. 
But imagine a time before Shrek I, I, and I, Fat Bastard. I know, I know. Where this was... Everybody's massacring Scottish accents <laughs> with any time they try and put one on. And Mike Myers His, comes on does, the screen. He does kinda, a pretty d- it good... It is a pretty good one. I don't think it's quite as good as he thinks it is, but it is pretty bloody good. No, it's, it's, it, it is a parody of a Scottish accent, really. It's not a, an authentic, deeply authentic, rich Glaswegian or anything like that. It is it is our version of well, it. No, and I think he's, he's, he's basing it on uh, partly his father's accent. His father's not actually Scottish. His father's Liverpoolian. Yeah. But apparently when he gets angry, he gets like vaguely Scottish. Okay. Um, and that's what he's trying to capture with but this accent. The character itself, when you look at how else it's played, there's a lot of very lovely Scottish stereotypes that are, that are within this. It's not just about that accent. It is a kind of filtered version of it. Yeah. But also someone who's clearly very aware of Scottish culture, I think. Yeah. You know, the, the, I mean, I love the, the the fact on the on the wall on the house. It's, it's pictures of um, <clears throat> it's Sean Connery and Jackie Stewart. Jackie Stewart being someone who I imagine most of the Americans haven't got a clue who he is. And to be honest, I only have a vague recollection. I only have a vague He's recollection a myself. Racer, isn't he? Something, yeah, something like that. Race car driver, Formula One or something. But you know, it opens up with this wonderful Bay City Rollers anthem with him prancing around and his tartan. You know, and it, that for me is kind of his first appearance I mean that's a kind of joyous thing there's that wonderful Rod Stewart yeah. um, rendition <laughs> later on of, of Do You Think I'm Sexy yeah we have a Piper down or is it Piper who is down all you've got or if you have a Piper who's down it's all right it's just messed we have a Piper down I repeat a Piper is down It's such a quotable film. It's one of the great quotable films. I think Mike Myers is behind most of the quotable films of the 1990s, but this has some of my favourite quotes. Every time Stuart McKenzie opens his mouth, another quote is born... I mean, I, I, uh, alone in this room, I suspect um, I first encountered this film in the cinema. What? Yeah, uh, I saw this. I saw this when it was originally released in 1993, and I bloody loved it. I absolutely loved it. I mean, I lo- I think I actually saw this before I saw Wayne's World because I didn't see Wayne's World in the cinema. Whoa! Um, so this would have been my introduction to Mike Myers and little innocent thing that I was. I, I was turning 15 that year, so I'd been 14 when I saw. Um, I didn't realise that Mike Myers was playing the dad as well. So that was a revelation to me. It was discovered, what? That's not a Scottish actor. Um, I honestly swear that's what I did. And lots of these things. And I, uh, one of the huge criticisms levelled at this film is how obvious it was that, spoiler alert, um, Harriet's not the killer, it's Rose. And I mean, yes, watching it now, as soon as Rose crazies her way onto the screen, it's like, oh yeah, she's the killer. But as as a, a teen watching it, as an unsophisticated, pre-media educated teen, I was watching it and I genuinely, that was a genuine surprise for me. So all of the things that this film is trying to do, it did successfully for me the first time I watched it. And now I can't watch it as a film theorist. I can't watch this analytically. I can't watch it actively because I'm afraid it will be shit if I do. I... Th- that was my first time watching it. Yeah. And... I did not see Rose being the killer. Oh, good! It wasn't just me. No, then. it wasn't just you. No, no. She's. I mean, it's all set up. Um, let's try to work out where way we're going to go, where we're going to steer this conversation. Because so we've done that thing that we we don't tend to do. We're kind of bouncing back and forwards a little bit. Um, so 
talking about the denouement, the, the, the kind of the climax of the film and the revelation that is Rose, the way that... Spoilers. What's her name, the other one? Harriet. Harriet. So the way that Harriet is actually set up, you're meant to increasingly think that it is Harriet. It's all yeah. about how it's lit. It's all of about course. the music that's used. It's all about those little coincidences. And Nancy Travers is fantastic in it. Uh, she's brilliant. Um, Always is. I think she's far too underused, actually, as an actress. It's it's that point when, you know, they start talking about getting married and you can kind of see her starting to very obviously change then and this fear. And then when she comes into the, the, the hotel for the honeymoon, like, it layers up. She's lit in this kind of very sinister kind of like I'm about to kill you there's these little knowing looks off to one side do you know what else I spotted in the rewatch that I did for this which no. I, was, I was again it's, it's years since I've seen it um, and uh, I'm a savvier film viewer now when she offers him the health shake uh-huh. I am certain it's lit from within the way Hitchcock lights the glass <laughs> of milk in um, Suspicion uh, isn't it? Suspicion yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm certain it's lit from within. Watch it again and look for that. The glass appears to glow, which is a lovely little nod. And again, this is Thomas Schlamme. He's he's a very savvy filmmaker. Uh-huh. Uh, he goes on to do um, The West Wing. Um, he does a lot of work with Aaron Sorkin, who's no dozer himself. Mm-hmm. So this is a this is a director who okay he might not necessarily be known for making you know sort of high art films as such, but he is a clever director, and I'm certain that's a deliberate. That's it. I mean, if there's a light in the glass, it's a deliberate nod to Hitchcock. It can be anything else. Oh, quite, quite definitely. I mean, the the, the way the whole thing is, is lit, it's very, very uh, deliberate. It's all meant to make us feel certain ways. I mean, actually, even when we first introduce her, where we see that she's a butcher. I mean, already we've kind of got this, okay, this is a woman who knows how to use. And we're told that So I Married an Axe Murder, the title actually sways us before you even go into the film. You think, oh, this is a film called So I Married an Axe Murder, so whenever I, you get married... I thought married, it was going to be a horror that I was watching. <laughs> I had no, no oh expectation for this <laughs> film whatsever. You, you weren't kind of... What, what point did you realise that it wasn't a horror film? I went, as soon as I seen Mike Myers. Um, so, you know, from the off, you know, we see the way that she works that cleaver and there's a the bit where she cleaves the, the, the ram's head. You know, it's all very, very uh, definitely signposted that she is the killer. So Rose's revelation actually does kind of take us from, takes the carpet out from underneath us. Okay, well, I'm glad it wasn't just me because every single review of it I read in preparation for doing this podcast was like, yeah, we all knew it was Rose, duh. I think that's Bill. Okay, good. Because I did not, I, think I that's was just genuinely being a, like, holy shit, it was Rose? Yeah. The first I, time I saw it. No, that, that's definitely bullshit. She definitely is creepy, though. I mean, she's, She is she, creepy, yeah. You know, from that first bit, it's okay, nothing happened. But but no, nothing did happen. Um, it, it, it's there, you know, that, that slight unease, the way that she... Um, She's at the door, you know, making his apologies and she just gets him from behind and, you know, freaks him out. Yeah, nobody does unhinged nut job like Amanda Plummer. (laughs) She is fantastic at it. The casting in this film is absolutely astonishingly good as well. We've got Brenda Fricker. I mean, Oscar winning Brenda Fricker. Is she Oscar winning at this point? I believe she was at this point Oscar winning. I mean, she was Oscar winning from ages back. For me, she's always just in casual thing. Yeah, obviously casually as well. But, you know, still... You know, that's good quality stuff and I know people who will definitely punch you if you try and argue otherwise um, you're not mocking her Scottish accent though it's not great either do you think I think her Scottish accent is lovely uh, it's very understated I just, I just keep just, hearing the Irish 
Well, yeah, there is obvious, but but the, the I think sometimes there's a tendency. Forgive me, Americans. When Americans um, do a Scottish accent, they overdo it mm. and they overemphasize the rolled R's and the the the, the slightly different vowel sounds. Aye. Whereas I think hers is quite soft. I'm not sure I'd have bought her as a Glaswegian, but I'm not sure we're supposed to buy them as Glaswegian. Well, I don't know if they're supposed to be from Glasgow. It is as well that she's Irish and that he's Canadian, isn't it? You know, in terms of the Scottish accents being the film, that no Americans doing them. Yeah, well, that's true. That is true as well. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, so, but so yeah, so we've got we've got Brenda Fricker, Oscar-winning Brenda Fricker. We've got Nancy Travers, who's always fabulous, although she's never been the biggest star in Hollywood, which hmm. I find odd, particularly around that period. She was doing lots and lots and lots of films that I loved, so maybe I'm biased. But um, we also have uh, Charles Grodin, you've got Alan Arkin, you've got Anthony LaPaglia, you've got, got how many people are in this Phil film? Phil Hartman. Yes, yes, and they're all, each and every one of those characters, I mean, Alan Arkin's character is one of my favourites in uh, sort of the history of ever. You know, the, the mild-mannered... It's the, it's the, the cop, the, the cop's boss. Yeah, the mild-mannered cop's boss who just can't bring himself to be mean. Is, well, <laughs> well, I don't actually report to a commissioner, Tony. Um, it's, it's a quorum. <laughs> it's just, it's wonderful. And that's the other thing. You, you're too nice. <laughs> I'm too nice? Yes, you're too nice. Why can't you be like the captain on Starsky and Hutch? You know, where you come in and you haul me into your office and you bawl me out because you're sick and tired of defending my screwballed antics to the commissioner? Why can't you do that? Well, the truth of the matter is I don't report to a commissioner. I report to a committee, some of whom are appointed, some elected, and the rest co-opted on a biannual basis. It's a quorum, so to speak. A quorum? Yeah. Captain, when I joined the police force, I thought that I was going to be Serpico, but instead I'm like, I'm like fish from Barney Miller. Hey... Somebody needs a hug. <laughs> and everybody is giving this 100%. Some of the stuff that I don't like about Mike Myers' later works, in fact, Wayne's World as well, is that it's it's very zany. And I don't mind a bit of zane, but over-the-top zaniness I get exhausted by quite quickly, which I think is a problem with some of the, some of the Austin Powers stuff, um, certainly Wayne's World. Whereas this, it's all beautiful observational comedy. I really like... Austin Powers. I'm a huge fan of Austin Powers. I'm a, a meh fan of Austin um, Powers. I don't I also, like it. I also like The Love Guru, which everybody else universally everybody hates. Everybody hates that, yeah. Except me. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I've never seen I've it, never so seen it. I, I assume I would hate it. I've seen it multiple times. Uh, I might just stick it on for us at some point. Right. Yeah, I'm well up for watching that, actually. So, for me, I think I, I kind of am bought into this film right from the off. I, I love that opening shot with the coffee cup yeah. in, in the cafe. As Again, we watch really it. clever director. Well, it's, a, it's a pretty nice, it's a nice long take, you know, where we kind of, we kind of work our way through the space. Um, I'm not sure that I've ever seen any cup in any coffee establishment ever being picked up, received, cleaned and issued again to somebody quite as quickly as that one is. And to Boo Radley's soundtrack, I mean, it is deeply, deeply 90s, this film. If you were sat down in an isolation booth and forced to sort of like not know anything else about what was going on in the entire world, culturally you could spot that film as being a 1990s film from the outset. Oh, it's well signposted, absolutely. Yes. Um, it's very zeitgeisty and grunge. does make me feel uh, a little bit more affection for my youth. Not that I was out enjoying much of it, but it's the music that, you know, I would have heard at the time. Um, but yeah, from that, that opening shot, 
into the cafe and then that wonderful kind of beat poet parody that, that Mike Myers does. <laughs> I, I, this is something, again, I only picked up on my latest. It's that he's actually supposed to be a professional poet. Yeah. Now, I know the 1990s was famous for pretending that people could make a living at stuff that they couldn't make a living at. Uh-huh. He's got a really nice San Francisco apartment and yeah. he's a full-time poet. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm afraid not. No, is he a full not even time? in the 1990s. Is he a full time poet? I don't forget yeah. any sense. That's not why he stays up late. I don't know. I see with like, all the coffee, all the no. cappuccinos. Again, he's that's that's his that's his whole job. That's is, why he's able to nip in and help her out in the butcher shop. He's nowhere else to be. He's a fucking poet. Oh, I, I just <laughs> sorry for swearing, but I find that a bit. Just, I mean, yeah, that that is the, the it's, leap it's that San, I cannot take with it, this film. It's San Francisco. I can believe that actually might have happened at some point, but it is a very nice apartment he has, um, topped only by hers, yeah. which is spectacular, really. Yes. It's not I mean, hers. She at least runs it's her own roses. business. It's, it's hers theirs. and roses. Theirs. Theirs. Mm. Yeah, the two of them. She runs her own business, so, you know, she's an entrepreneur. That's true. She likes a bit of meat, what, she does. What does Rose do? Yeah. It, she just generally creeps out and kills people, I think, is what she does. The impression I got was that Harriet moves around with her her husband. She has been living elsewhere in the States, but that's where she comes back to. From, from oh, Rose. yes, because there is yeah. a reference to how Harriet goes away, but she always comes back. She always, comes back, she always yeah. comes back to me, yeah. She sounds like, Rose sounds like such a scorned lover, doesn't she? Like well, one of those ones who's got a partner who disappears off. It's like, he, you know, he's always off seeing other men, but other women, but it's all right because he always comes back to me. Yeah. It's kind yeah of, well, yes, well, clearly she does because you murder her husband's rose. But um, to be obsessed about your sister just seems a bit weird. I mean, I love Ben a lot, but, you know, I, I don't care who he's banging. Yeah, I mean, same with my sister. Yeah, I, 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 I do a lot to defend her and stuff, but um, oh. I wouldn't murder people that she's sleeping with, no. Thanks, Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, not even murdering my wife. Um, But yeah, so can we talk about whether or not that character is supposed to be as temporarily annoying as he occasionally is in the film? So Charlie, yeah. So Mike Myers, Charlie. You see, originally I thought that he was supposed to be a little bit over the top and annoying but I'm actually not sure anymore th- that he is I think he's supposed to be charming and I think he's not. part of the problem is that it, it, it very much draws on Mike Myers style of comedy yeah, and his performance and at absolutely. that point he's just come off Saturday Night Live yeah. and that's what he's known for um, and he's playing all sorts of characters and that Wayne's World is the first really big film that he's done and has done phenomenally well at the box office. Yes, it's the biggest film of 1992 I think or one of them certainly So one of the things that is said to him about this is that I mean he had a, a big hand and rewriting the script as well and he wanted part of the reason he did the film in the first place was not only allowed him to do those kind of Saturday Night Live characters and that kind of comedy but also allowed him to play something a bit straighter Mm -hmm. Um, and actually you know in his moments where he's playing Charlie straight Mm -hmm. it's actually quite affable and engaging and you you know I I feel he's being sincere Mm -hmm. yeah well that opening scene Mm -hmm. I just find him really obnoxious I, every time he says hello, hello, I kind of want to want to rip off his arm and hit him with a wet end. Hello, again. There's that, that, and he does that it wet end reference. Yeah. Did you see that before? Was that yeah. the vertigo? No, that was um, Charlie and Chocolate Factory. Charlie and Chocolate Factory. That's right. Rachel wanted to beat people with a wet end. No, she 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 didn't want to rip his arm <laughs> off and beat him with a wet end. 
I just think but it's no, a really she, you, fantastic no, she does. No, she yeah. does. So, so okay, well, there's, there's definitely a pattern. We're going to have to listen to this over several other shows. I feel like it's appropriate for a film called So I Married an Axe Murderer. For the only woman in the room to want to whip him with a wet end. The wet, the wet end of his ripped off arm. <laughs> Yes, I was Any, just trying to downplay your your psychopathy at this point. <laughs> I think it's fine. You know, we're talking about female psychopaths, so I I feel it's appropriate. Um, but yeah, he does that over people speaking. Yeah. He does hello over people speaking, and that's really obnoxious. I think it's, it's okay. So to read more into the character, to assume that this is a film that has much more going on than than the surface entertainment that obviously all films are produced for. Um. You've got a, a, a guy who I'm guessing is quite insecure in yes. many respects. You know, he is quite awkward. He is a performer, yeah, but not necessarily 100% comfortable with being that person. I mean, clearly you go around to his domestic life and his parents are so over the top. It's a wonder the guy can exist. His best friend... Um, insists on dressing like a, a 1970s <laughs> porno star. You look like Huggy Bear. You know, it, it's just not... Um, quite difficult to compete with that also it's, I mean this is California this is San Francisco I mean to, to be seen and heard and amongst all that cannot be an easy thing to do yeah I'm, I'm assuming so yeah. that that insecurity I guess manifests itself in just being a little bit hello look at me yeah. I mean, I mean, seems loved but again I think there. this is where I have the trouble working out how much of that is, is nuance in the character and how much of that is Mike Myers just doing Mike Myers Saturday Night Live persona because the commitment phobia stuff I think we are uh-huh. supposed to reject that we're supposed to see that as being um, I mean she clearly didn't steal his cat and smelling <laughs> like soup is not really a valid reason to end yeah, a relationship but you, d- you didn't smell it was beef and veg yeah <laughs> I admit that would be disconcerting, but to walk away from a promising relationship on those grounds, again, I think we are supposed to read that as him being a bit he immature. Has, and, he and has not, commitment issues. He has commitment issues. I mean, that line where he says, Mom, you know I'm terrified of marriage. Like, you really didn't need to spell that one out for us. That's just, and apart from anything else, like, that's not something anybody would say. But it's okay, we get that. We totally get what you're saying. You broke up with her because she smelt like soup. Um, So part of me thinks that there is a part of that character that we're supposed to kind of dislike a little bit. Yeah. Um, so that that makes the hello a bit more okay for me. But if we're supposed to think that him shouting hello over other people speaking is charming, I'm not on board with that. I don't think it's charming. I think it's it's attention grabbing is all that is really. You know, it's a hello. Um, I mean, I'm quite annoyed at myself for doing it repeatedly. <laughs> and I feel I can't stop. <laughs> Oh don't dear, have, this is an unexpected side effect of this watch. Don't have a conversation with this week, folks. It's going to be unbearable. Hello! And that is different from other weeks. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, that was unfair. <sighs> wasn't really. <laughs> don't cry, Robert. It's fine. It's, it's okay. It's recorded. It's going out there in the public sphere. I'm bullied <laughs> by my colleague. Um, yeah, yeah, so I, I guess not. I mean, even the style of poetry that he does yes. do... Um, I mean, my my knowledge of the beat poets and stuff is is negligible. Mine too. I Same. suspect it's better than that. Um, but you know, it's it's very formulaic. I mean, he knows already. It's the, oh, it's the woman poem, right? <laughs> so it's like yeah, 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 woman. Woman. Whoa, man! Whoa, man! Whoa, 
was a thief, you gotta believe she stole my heart and my cat. Betty, Judy, Josie, and those hot pussy cats. They make me horny Saturday morning. Girls of cartoons won't leave me in ruins. I want to be Betty's Barney. Hey, Jane. Get me off this crazy thing called love. Um, also as well, he has his own jazz band and yeah. supports himself as a poet in San Francisco. Yeah. Again, stretching my believability a bit far there. I, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we talked recently about the music industry and trying to support yourself on this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, on our Bigger Than Rod pod. Oh, the bigger than Rod Pod. That sounds good. Um, I, I don't know what the realities of this are in Americana. I, I always assumed it's a bit easier over there, but I have no San Francisco idea. is supposedly one of the most expensive cities in the world. It is, yeah. yeah. So I would imagine poets have a hard time surviving on their poetry. But it's also that place that everyone goes because there are poets. I mean, that's a big part of their culture. That is where, you know, the, the Jack Kerouacs and stuff did live. I think Jack Kerouac yes. Street is is one of the ones that we see right yeah. at the start. Yeah, the poetry club is is at. Yeah. So that whole whole bit of, the, of of San Francisco, like if you go there, it is full of these little places, these little cafes that have that stuff going on. There's all the little yeah. poetry shops, and people buy into it. And actually, I what totally you want to do that, is, yeah. and what you want to do is you want to go and experience that stuff. So mm-hmm. maybe just on tourism alone. That is possible. I sort of assumes that these open mic nights are paying the people who perform, <laughs> which I, I suspect so. they're probably not. Is, oh, is that the norm? Like for beat poets to just recite poetry in a coffee shop? Um, it's. it's <laughs> I mean, we're so removed from this, but it's it. I suppose on the one time it's it's a character in itself. Um, you would have seen it a lot in films in the sixties. Whenever the sort of the, the this sort of jazz poet beat poet thing kind of came around, it turns up on a lot of kind of counterculture films. I think even a couple of Roger Corman films are based around this. Um, and this was a scene that was vaguely familiar. You know these little coffee bars and the guys with the, the smoky. Thanks for providing that for us today, Ben. The smoky, heady atmosphere. <laughs> uh, you know, and the the, the kind of clicking and all the rest of it. That that was, I believe, what they did. And I think it still exists. And as a kid, mm. when I kind of started writing my own really bad poetry... Oh, you've I got c- to do that as a kid. Are you even a teenager if you're not writing really bad poetry? I only stopped after I got rejected by my office and publishers. Um, <laughs> true story. Uh, but I kind of... that. I, yeah, you're spared. I, I kind of feel that... Uh, I kind of expected that to still go on. But there is a poetry scene. In, I mean, where we are in Northern Ireland, there's a, there's oh, a poetry huge. scene. Yeah, and yeah, I've been to a couple of their Haney, events. We have but there's more that, that that kind of something that's a bit closer to what they're doing than than Seamus Heaney also exists here. I mean, I've been to a couple of their nights um, somewhere that we we work with the Crescent Arts Centre. Does oh, have the these open mic well. poetry night? Yeah, it's absolutely fabulous. So I mean, that stuff does sort of exist. Uh, they, and they, yeah, I mean, I suppose performance poetry is of the same ilk as beat poetry, but yeah. it's a different beast, um, and that's that's kind of huge here. But again, I'm not sure anybody's. Making a living off it? Supporting themselves as a performance poet. I, I mean, very, very few of them are, but yeah. Not impossible. I mean, he, he the way he's played within it, he does seem to be um, liked and known by the crowd. Which again, I'm not sure I buy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't not like his poems. But I think it says something about this film that my major issue with the film So I Married an Axe Murderer is the fact that I don't believe he could support himself as on poetry alone in San Francisco. Everything else I'm fine with. 
Hmm. One of the big questions they often ask about films is about your suspension of disbelief. In order to buy into the film, you have to be able to suspend all your disbelief and just completely engage in it. Rachel is thrown by the idea that as a beat poet, you can make a living in San Francisco. Yeah, but again, this what is, is the what 19- is your right? This is the 1990s. This was the decade that asked us to believe that a waitress could 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 um, live in a really nice, a massive apartment. Okay, she shared with Monica in Manhattan, <laughs> or that um, uh, Carrie Bradshaw could support herself writing one column a week in Manhattan happen in a really nice apartment so you know the 1990s was not big on um, allowing the world to believe that writers didn't make very much money so okay fine let's <laughs> let's roll with this and Monica was a chef wasn't she yeah she was yeah, yeah. Phoebe was living alone as a masseuse so yeah it's, it, it's really it's not big on realistic earning potentials it, it, in its lead characters. It's suspension of disbelief, you know. I mean, Woody Allen was once lined up for this film. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah. so it's I, a I, totally different film there. I don't know. Are you aware of Woody Allen at all, Ben? No, not really. And apart from what we talked about during the Art vs. Artist conversation, which was we, we did talk about my little there, but we probably haven't... Uh, Vaguely remember something about that we'll do, we'll do a Woody Allen film at some point just so you can kind of oh joy. get that I think it's important that we cover these things oh joy <laughs> but you know would you, if, if you had someone like Woody Allen in, in that role as well though you, apart from the fact the relationship would be a little bit even more uneven but it would be very Woody Allen yes. and you could totally see Woody Allen playing a you, whether you would accept it or not, I think there's almost an acceptance that it's a Woody Allen film, and therefore you can accept the fact that he might be a poet making a living and living in San Francisco. I would still be questioning that. But <laughs> I would still be questioning. But that. you know what I mean in the sense that Woody Allen's films all have somebody living well outside their means, considering what it is that they do, living in these great big lofty apartments and having a life that most of us can just envy. Okay. Look, it's it is a really stupid quibble to have with the film. Mm. I I accept that, but it's a quibble that I have. I'm more bothered about the fact that his parents just arrived in San Francisco at some point and decided to get married. I mean, like, how did that happen and I get up by a house? I thought they got married before they came to San Francisco. He says that they no, because they back at the they talk about the anniversary and they you know they bought the house when they got married in San Francisco. Oh, okay, I missed that. Yeah. Hmm. I see this is the other thing um that uh, the, the warmth of that relationship uh I mean that's that's really that feels very very real I mean His Stuart, yeah mm. Stuart McKenzie is a head case but head he's, case. yeah he's 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 uh, the, some of the stuff that he says about the younger son I don't know if he's ever named apart from heed um <laughs> Some of the stuff he's, is, is horribly abusive, but at the same time, that family unit is extremely close-knit and loving. Uh, it's William Heed McKenzie. William, okay, there Matt you go. Matt Doherty is the, the actor. There you go. Um, and, you know, May, okay, she goes after Tony a few times, but the love yeah, what the that hell? exists, I know. <laughs> what the hell is it? And this is one of the reasons why I actually can't I can't bring myself to do an analysis of this film because I'm a gender theorist and it's I, it's just it's in 
I just know I'm going to have to get cross with it if I have to do a gender Look, analysis if that, on if it. If that was a boy, if it was yeah. a man doing that, you kind of go, oh, for fuck's sake. But if, you would accept it as just being a thing. We shouldn't just find her because she's a woman going for the younger I man. I know, I know, I know. And the fact is that this film originated as two, um, two embittered men talking about how embittered they were about their breakups, yeah. their recent breakups. That's a horrible place to start with um, and create a narrative about a woman who might be actually murdering her husbands. There is yeah. so many reasons to, to to go down a really critical analysis of this film and I don't want to. I want to love it. I want to have nice things. Yeah, so that's where this one originates, was a conversation between two guys having a chat about their breakups. And from that, they stemmed into this conversation about the worst case scenario. Well, no, they were they were basically claiming that they just thought women, these women, were trying to kill them, um, and that was. I mean, they they took that literal moaning about women being awful to its illogical conclusion that okay, what if the woman was actually trying to kill us? And from that, hilarity ensues. But it actually is hilarious. That's the problem. That's what where where I can't do the analysis because I like it. It's it, funny. But it's possibly salvaged by the fact that actually, spoiler, she's not the one that's wanting to kill him. So therefore She's just afraid because the past three husbands have, have all, all disappeared. Disappeared. I mean, ultimately she is the one character that well, her and potentially May Mackenzie, but May Mackenzie's kind of problematized by the fact that she's going after non-consensually going after uh, Tony's character but Harriet's character is the only one that's really kind of without flaw in this film I mean the flaw that she has is that she might be a serial killer but she's not <laughs> seems like a pretty yeah. big flaw to it possibly is a pr- have well to, to be a serial killer would in fact be a big flaw to have but she's not a serial killer she's somebody who has been damaged by um, by by what she sees as like the the repeated rejection of her husband's um, who have, as she imagines, left her on her wedding night every single time. Um, and uh, within that, she has gone on to remain an open, loving, relationship-oriented, um, entrepreneurial, kind, funny, intelligent and accomplished woman. And by the end of the film, she's all of those things still. So she's really the only character that doesn't come under come under some kind of negative interrogation. What's the issue with him? With him? Mm-hmm. Commitment phobic. That's what she is. Well, she's both of them are both of them are actually in a way dealing with their same kind of fear. But she doesn't reject as a result of that. She's quite open to the relationship. She allows that healthy relationship to exist and to to expand and to grow. Mm-hmm. He's the one that stamps down on it because he freaks out. He has his usual freak out. He freaks out because he thinks she's going to kill him, though. Yes, it's not. But he's not in the context of his previous relationships. Everybody has every right to go. What Charlie an axe murderer? Seriously, this time the last one was a klepto Charlie. Yes, I, I get that, but I guess for me, it's when you watch how his relationship progresses with her, he genuinely falls into affection yeah, and, and so finds she. it very easy. She's and really open, though. This is this is the key thing for me: is how open she is, even after what she as she perceives as repeated, painful, devastating rejection. Mm. She's still very much open, and he doesn't have the same claim to that level of hurt because he rejects before. The, the commitment can, can really deepen. Do, do we give him bonus points for ensuring that, in fact, for, do we give the film bonus points for ensuring that there's a nice consensual sex scene at the start? 
in their relationship, there's yeah. the point, you know, he goes back to the apartment and he says, you know, I, I think maybe we shouldn't rush into this stuff. And he's getting ready to go. And she's like, well, I want you to spend the night. Yeah. It's like, I have no problem with that. They have that conversation yeah. as opposed to like just going in and banging. I think the film gets lots of bonus points along the way. Uh, the relationship between Stuart and May is problematic, mm-hmm. clearly. Um, but the sequence at their wedding anniversary, that's heartfelt. To my wife, May. 30 years ago today, May and I were married. Some of you were there, some of you weren't born, and some of you are now dead. But we both said I do, and we haven't agreed on a single thing since. That's true. But I'm glad I married you, May, because they could have been worse. And besides, I still love you. I suppose that's probably relationships generally, is that the relationships themselves are always complicated and that people accept certain things that they probably shouldn't do in an ideal world, but they do um, because of the scenario that they're in. Yeah, I mean, it, it opens with, with, he's actually, I mean, when he goes, shut it, when she's she's coming in, she's singing, um, did you happen to see the most beautiful girl mm. in the world? And he goes, shut it. She doesn't bat an eyelid. She doesn't shrink. Mm. or react to it in a way that suggests that this is hurtful behaviour, which it kind of is, you know, that's not really okay at all. But she's just like, oh, you are one, aren't you? And she completely owns herself in that relationship. Um, they're, They're both themselves and accepting of each other, which I think is kind of healthy. While also there are lots of unhealthy things in that relationship, I think it's genuinely pretty healthy and pretty full of love. And the affection that their two sons have for both of them is clear. This is one of a number of films that we've been looking at that set around San Francisco as well. Um, you want me to make my argument for this as like a, a, the the successor to Vertigo? Well, I, was, I was kind of <laughs> I thought actually I'd bring Ben onto this bit to sort of like see you know you see you you've seen the city now in in Vertigo not that long ago and now you've seen it in in So I Married an Axe Murder. Do you get a sense of this being the same space that we're working within? Do you see parallels or similarities or anything? If the answer is no, that's okay. I suppose, well, I never thought of it like that. Ah, okay. Um, But on reflection, yeah. You know, whenever he's driving along past the barbers and all, he's clearly going up a hill and Uh he's going down a hill in the car and everything. So, yeah, um, even sort of the the architecture of Uh the, the parents' house. You know, yeah, um, it's very sort of similar to what you've seen in Vertigo. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I suppose you you could you could sort of draw that um, what correlation between the two. I think it's hard not to 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 draw something whenever you consider again we've got murders at the centre of this. We have got uh, a possibly inept policeman who's in there as well. Um, although one remove it's not the Jimmy Stewart character this time it's Jimmy Stewart's friend is the net policeman yeah. uh, there is a bit of a mystery there's uh, hidden identities there's you know there's stuff there femme fatale mm-hmm. um, I mean I, I basically made up this argument to annoy Robert um, I thought he'd be more annoyed by it so you know joke's on me ultimately <laughs> but, <laughs> but he's actually caught, he's on board with it by the yeah. signs of things yeah. totally on board with it 
I just think there are lots of Hitchcockian elements to this film. I think a lot of the camera work is, is Hitchcockian. I actually think that the coffee cup at the start is yeah. much more suspicion-like than the, the, the you know, in any respect, that we actually follow it through. But it's possibly something that gets repeated and repeated. It references Spellbound for me, mm. um, that, that oversized hand with the, uh, the, the gun and everything. Oh, yes. Yeah, um, okay, very good. Yeah, and that, that kind Dilemma of... Dilemma for murder. Yeah, that's one that I haven't seen yet, um, and I do need to see it. I know I do. But yeah, I mean, it's also a love letter to San Francisco in the same way that Vertical was a love letter to San Francisco, and it makes a point of taking us round all of the San Francisco tourist sites. Um, and, you know, again, you've got that, the, the long takes and the mobile camera, the use of sound, the, the very Hitchcockian use of sound, the Hitchcockian use of um, suspense and surprise and... Um, yeah, the house references Psycho for me mm-hmm. as well. Um, so yeah, I, 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 while I, as I say, I, I initially came up with this idea hoping that Robert would be cross. Um, the more I think about it, the more I actually kind of... You believe I, in it yourself? I do, and I believe my hype, yeah. <laughs> I think there's definitely um, parallels and connections. I mean, it's one of those things, even just by virtue of, of watching two films back to back, is that sometimes you make a connection between two things that you never would have seen any other way. And and you kind of make those parallels and those connections. I kind of want to write a monograph on this now. I, I think because of this... I mean, we've been looking at this over over the course of a number of weeks with the space. I mean, we we, we have looked at Vertigo. Um, we've stuck up our recording by Harold and Maud. Um, we were also looking at The Bridge. Um, so San Francisco itself is a space that you know we're sort of becoming gradually more and more aware of and sort of living in for for this <laughs> these few weeks of the show. Um, it is an interesting space. I think it is a character in its own right. I mean, this wouldn't work, I guess, in the same way in New York for some reason. It wouldn't. No. No, it would be a different film. I suppose again, that's that's something to do with like the civic mood, is it, or the civic. Um, atmosphere that it projects or attitude that it projects i mean new york's a wonderful city which, which i've been to both new york and san francisco um and i honestly couldn't choose between the two of them they both have their own heartbeat their own atmosphere their own sense of themselves yeah. um but it would be a completely different film i am most surprised that they take a trip to alcatraz because these are, are two San Francisco residents. Yeah. yeah and they're really, with themselves, they're not with tourists. It's to, really to go. difficult to get to Alcatraz, as I discovered when I rocked up at San Francisco and went, How do you get to Alcatraz? Well, you book five weeks in advance. <laughs> I went, Oh, so I'm not going to Alcatraz then. So I didn't get to go to Alcatraz. You got, I take it you got to Alcatraz. I got to Alcatraz because oh. I, I planned. <laughs> I booked five weeks in advance. Well, I didn't know I was going to go when I went. I just, I, I was supposed to be working for another six weeks and I just got on a greyhound and went, Yeah, I'm going off to see the rest of this country so yeah I rocked up a bit earlier than I expected to in my defence so yeah I believe that you know they were probably waiting all that time since they, they were born, since, since they born to again, get to Alcatraz <laughs> although they do know Vicky yeah, Vicky's the best apparently <laughs> uh, Vicky yeah um, was that who was that that's Phil Hartman Phil Hartman uh-huh. yeah who you will recall uh, yeah, from, from Jingle, all, Jingle the way. all the Way. Yeah, it's all tying together. Yeah, Isn't it amazing? It's weird. <laughs> Everyone always assumes when I start this show off that there's no kind of like thing, but we are we're gradually weaving a web that'll tie everything together. Yes. Who, who was the guy in the the car? 
uh, Charles. I've forgotten his name again. I always get his surname wrong. It's Charles Gruden. Charles Gruden. There we go. Um, I first knew him, I'm pretty sure, from Beethoven. Pretty sure he was in Beethoven, wasn't he? Um, I think he might have been. Uh, yes, he was. I mean, the stuff that I know him from is certainly not worthy of the man, his work, or his talent. Woman in Red, uh, <laughs> yeah. The Incredible, uh, sorry, The Great Muppet Caper, yeah. Catch 22, Heartbreak Kid, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. So, do you know what I mean? I know him from Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember Beethoven? Yeah. That's the one, yeah. Was he in Problem Child as well, or am I thinking of somebody different? I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure he was in Problem Child. Um, yeah, he just looked familiar. I was like, wonder where I'd seen his face before. I think it's that thing. Like, it's one of those films that's packed full of people that were we know from other other films. I mean, Alan Arkin's in this without having a credit at all. Yeah, he's complete cameo. He just shows up and is wonderful <laughs> and doesn't even get a credit for it. And Alan Arkin, to be fair, is a pretty big name. You know, he's a very well-established and very well-respected actor. So, you know... It's surprising that he doesn't need or want the credit. I mean, I, I heard that you know, Mike Myers was such an ascendant star at that point that people were just queuing up to work with him. Apparently so, yeah. Most of them worked on the film just to work with Mike. Mm-hmm. Although there's also tales, apparently, that the production itself was quite problematic and people find Mike Myers difficult to work with. Um, some people suggested that actually, no, he was just quite demanding, um, but there was a process. I mean, he's very much, uh, him and a friend, co- basically rewrite the script they rework it and he does an awful lot of improv as well and it's pretty obvious because so often she's you can see her on the verge of corpsing well she cut part of her finger off because she was laughing at him at one point she literally cut in the butcher scene scene, um, she she literally cut part of her finger off it had to be sewn back on because she was laughing at his improv (laughs) and she missed just cutting vegetables or something and chopped it off so yeah I mean that's genuine the reaction that she's she's giving him is genuine He's, he's genuinely making her laugh yeah, he strikes is, me as an actor who has a real instinct and it's an uncompromising instinct and I think that instinct is generally good I mean you hear the stories of Shrek having to be reanimated at a cost of four million dollars because he suddenly went no this this ogre needs to be Scottish uh-huh. and they had they were three quarters of the way through at that point and while yes um Fair enough. It's not like you have to reshoot the whole thing. Um, the gestures had to be reanimated, so they they had to reanimate a chunk of this um, because he went, no, no, needs to be Scottish. And the way it's told, um, everybody heard and saw the, the result and went, actually, you were completely right. That was $4 million well spent. So his instincts are strong and uncompromising. He, he did it on this too. He, there's uh, one of the sequences they he completely said reshot, don't like it. It was one of, the, one of the interiors, one of the houses, and just wasn't happy. So, it, I mean, it's an interesting thing to see him. And he's, he's the star of the film, but he's not the guy in charge. And yet he still wields this immense power, um, particularly someone who's on the rise. Yeah. You know, this is not Mike at the top of his career at this point. This is Mike rapidly ascending. Mm. Like, Wayne's World just pushes him up there. This just goes a little bit further. Well, and you it, see, that's the thing, though. It, it crashes and burns at the box office. Oh, yeah. This doesn't it, do well. It doesn't even it? make its budget back. No, didn't do well. Critics hated it. Yeah. Um, the film didn't do immensely well at first. However, it does rapidly become a cult film. So it has its... It's a bit like Freddy Got Fingered. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Freddie Got Fingered. Please, can we not compare the film that I love to Freddie Got Fingered? We're, we're talking around about this. We're not, not <laughs> that far away in time either, to be fair. I know, I know. These are films I made around about the same time. These are actors who really are, you know, on the ascent. Tom Green, Saturday Night Live as well. Um, I thought it was just the MTV okay, thing. Oh, MTV, MTV, sorry. Yeah. T- uh, I, I shut up now. So they are having, you know, they are they are kind of ascending their careers, and they are, there is this progress. But then they do a film that, that doesn't quite hit. Now Tom Green basically his problems he's too fucking weird for most people. Let's <laughs> <laughs> be honest. Definitely for me. You know, some of us get it, some of us don't. I know. That's uh, why I was basically begging you guys to explain it to me when we did that pod. It's like you guys are intelligent, and I respect your opinion. <laughs> what have I missed? <laughs> All of it, All basically. Of it, yeah. um, it's not so, like my mum watching the Blues Brothers. My dad and I are in a wrinkle on the floor. My mum's looking at us like, why is this funny? <laughs> so I think it's pretty much the same with this. Is that, you know, this is a film that, that again, it, maybe it's because he's slightly unhinged because his character isn't 100% likeable. Maybe it's just, um, there is a, it sounds like a throwaway title. So I married an axe murderer. Which actually, when you say that, it's almost quite a dismissive line. So I might an act murderer. You know, it's, a, it's very nineties as well. That's the nineties construction. You could sort of see it as like a very clickbaity. Yeah. Title. It probably would do great now. Yeah. Um, but it didn't then. Because the internet wasn't a thing. No, and I, th- I think people hadn't really caught on to just how versatile Mike was either. Yeah. You know, after this, as I think as Rachel's already said, you know, he starts playing multiple characters, which I think also probably took a great toll on him. And again, this is where the comparison with someone like Peter Sellers is very obvious. Someone who is, mm-hmm. by Mike's own admission, a hero of his. Like Peter Sellers would go into films and he'd play three or four characters. And again, that took a massive toll on him. Um, Doctor Strangelove is probably the, the, you know, a good example of this. He's, I think he's three people in that and yeah. he was at one point supposed to do a fourth. Um, he does it later on for uh, the Fu Manchu movie, I believe, um, and, and other ones that he does. I mean, he, he he's literally multiplying himself up. And that's a strain on an actor and a performer, because you're not just doing your job, you're doing someone else's. We talked about briefly about Willy Wonka. I mean, poor Deep Roy playing every fucking Oompa Loompa <laughs> on that film, yeah. uh, you know, on the, in the more recent version of it, on, yeah. on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Like, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Even just to go through the logistics and movements, you've been on set. All right, yeah. You know yeah. how frustrating it is to have to do the same thing yeah. four or five times. Four or five times and then change angle and do it mm-hmm. again four or five times. Now, you imagine doing that, but then having to play a different personality every time as well. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, you sit watching Mike play off himself. Yeah. Uh, and Yeah, and it's it's again, it's really hard to kind of cognitively process the fact that he's not, playing off himself he's playing off something that's not there yeah at this yeah. point helps yeah. that there's really good uh, split screen on that that yeah. you actually can't you can't see the join yeah often you can see where they've kind of stuck it together but they've managed to do it really effectively in this you one you can on mr tumble <laughs> that's that's where my references exist these days kids programs um yeah anyway would we call mike myers an auteur comedian I don't even know what that means. Oh, you haven't. Somebody hasn't been reading his Cyrus Pantheon. No. Um, Chaplin is considered an auteur comedian in Cyrus's Pantheon. It's it's comedians who may or may not be directing themselves, but the 
the level of creative input is sufficient to regard them as an auteur. And I think just when we're talking about So I Married an Axe Murder, and in fact, just just you know, that again, Shrek, mm. um, and that, yes, producers, I need you to stump up another four million because my creative uh, genius tells me that this is incorrect. Um, he does have quite a disproportionate level of creative control for... for uh, uh, a bog standard actor. Uh, well, what do you feel yeah. about this? I don't know. I thought like to be um, an auteur, you had to do everything to Did, some degree. See, this is where um, I think we have the problem because normally when we're talking about auteurs, uh, you know, they're talking purely about directors. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, a director maybe has a bit of control over camera work usually a lot of control over the actors has some say in how money is spent but ultimately they're not making all the decisions yeah. where I argued the case for someone like Chaplin or Keaton um, or Woody Allen potentially is that they actually have their hands in a little bit more they're doing more than just being a director they're also perhaps being an actor and they're also maybe writing music um, like John Carpenter is quite interesting because he's producing his films he's directing and he's also scoring them so there's a bit more John Carpenter in the average John Carpenter film even though he's not on screen so Annabella, like Annabella, she's a auteur as well. Yeah, as I think we're all in agreement, Annabella is definitely an auteur. She goes even further though. She's not just someone who can act and, and sort of uh, direct the films and produce them. She just was down to direct, you know, actually designing the costumes and writing the music. Like she's really, really hands on yeah. in a, absolutely every element kind of way. Yeah. I suppose the argument in Ra- that Rachel's sort of forwarding is that Mike Myers, um, actually, even though he's the actor and ostensibly on this film that's the only job that he's doing mm-hmm. we do know that he had a big hand in rewriting the script so therefore he's got a much more influence on the script side of things but also he does appear to be making decisions that that means they have to reshoot whole sequences because he says so yeah. so that gives him a bit more power a bit more pulling power on the likes of a producer or a director and potentially he's actually directing his own performances particularly if he's going off on ad libs I mean if he's ad libbing the shit out of this um, I don't see why you can't argue the case that actually he's he's sort of directing himself. So I'm not sure entirely where I sit on this one in terms of him as a as a comedy auteur. I, I, he definitely seems to have a lot more control than most performers would do. Um, so it's an interesting one to come back to. And I think perhaps if we were looking at three or four of his sums, that's when you really start to make mm. the argument. You know, because anyone can have control over a peach a picture. It's about how that then influences their next film and their next film because that can change. If you make a, a mess of it, like per Tom Green, you might not get a chance to make something else. Oh. But he did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely feels like it, doesn't no, it? No, he's, he said <laughs> that he, he went on record and said, I wanted to make the most ridiculous film uh, because these idiots gave me a million yeah. to make it. Um. Yeah, you, you've got that. But I think for other people, you know, it, it can change. Mike, I think, definitely has a bit more control. What's interesting is now he's he, more likely to see him turning up in something, somebody else's stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a shame. I think we've actually, I, mean, I miss seeing a new kind of Mike Myers comedy. Yeah. Because um, I think he's I a would love an Austin Powers for it. He's been talking about it for 20 years. I would love one. It needs to happen at it some does. point. Um, so it, in, in summing up your feelings on the film... 
I love it. I was afraid I wouldn't love it as much because it has been a few years since I saw it and I was afraid to watch it in case I didn't love it as much as I loved before. And I've seen it loads and loads of times. I can quote chunks of it. I love it. I will always love it. As far as I'm concerned, he would need to come back with something spectacular for this for it to take my place, take its place as my favourite Mike Myers film of all time. Yeah, I could <laughs> take it or leave it, to be honest. <laughs> Um, I'm, I I actually really enjoyed it all over again. Uh, I didn't remember it so well when I was younger, but I definitely had seen it. Uh, I've rewatched it twice in the last couple of months, and I've enjoyed it on both occasions. And for me as well, it's also tied in with the San Francisco thing now. You know I'm slightly obsessed yeah. with that city. Yeah. Um, I, even just this morning, as we were coming into the record, I realised that I, you know, a couple of locations... I had inadvertently walked through yeah. and taken photographs of, and so not you, because they're iconic. You were doing a vertigo tour, but you were actually doing a so I married an axe murderer. It turns tour. out I did quite a bit of so I married an axe murderer as well. Yes. Um, so yeah, there there is that kind of weirdness about it, but it, it, it you know it's a great film. I think the vertigo thing is something that we need to tease out further. Oh, I'm definitely doing a monograph on it. Excellent. This. So there's a monograph coming at some point. <laughs> it's happening. I've decided it will be so. So let us know what you think about. It. What's your favourite lines from uh, this film? Uh, what's the, your favourite? quotes uh, did you enjoy the film did you not like the film is mike myers any good at all all those questions and more you know how to get hold of us we're on twitter and facebook as cinepunk you'll also find us on instagram as cinepunk film uh if you have just discovered this podcast for the first time hopefully you've enjoyed it you can download it from your favorite providers and uh, also from our website to cinepunk.com um, we have lots more coming up for you in the following weeks and months unless you're listening to this way in the future in which case there's probably a whole archive of material that you can dig up on unless we've gone like the BBC and we've only salvaged one or two recordings for posterity who knows anyway that's us for now um, hopefully uh, you, we'll see you again soon uh, thanks as ever for uh, to Ben for um, doing all the magical uh, knobs thank you Ben Simpson we love your knobs yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The Hidden Hysterics on the sofa. Dr. Rachel Kelly, thank you very much, as always. Thank you. And uh, from me, Robert J. Simpson, thank you as well. Until the next time, bye-bye.